Well, good evening, Mosaic. Welcome, welcome. Hey, you've made it here on a Saturday night that's opening a kickoff for the Razorbacks. So I salute you. Congratulations. Um, I, we have iPads up here, and I actually have the game on my iPad, so that's what I'll be doing as I'm looking at it. Just kidding. Um, hey, I do have a, a quick thing I'd love to ask. If you're sitting on these two sides, would you be brave and bold enough to scooch in to these two middle rows? I know it's kind of scary. We got some, some leaders going over here. Uh, we, yeah, we're just gonna try to create a little bit of a, a closer space in here tonight. If you feel comfortable, just wanna invite you to, to scoot in. If you're a guest, we would love to just welcome you here and we're glad you're here. Let's stand and let's worship King Jesus tonight. Cross brings transformation. I'll 
And I'd love to invite Tom Toomer up to the stage as he's gonna be leading us in a prayer pause tonight. We've been doing this on the first Saturday of each month. Um, and it's just a way for us to connect as a body as we pray and build a culture of prayer. So Tom, welcome. Come on up, man. Well, good evening. It's good to be here. My name's Tom Toomer. I get a privilege of helping with the prayer team. Um, hey, we had a handout in the back. If you didn't get them, um, that, there should be some in the back to grab, but we're going to be using that tonight and then beyond. Well, for about the last year, God has been doing something uh, unique and new with the prayer team. And part of the whole thing that God is doing is he wants to form and transform each of our lives. And he does that as he transforms our hearts. And Romans 12.2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. A friend of mine says we need to learn to rethink our thinking. Okay, let that settle a minute. Rethink our thinking. You and I are inundated every single day with lies and half-truths about who God is, about who we are, and where life is found. And so we need to rethink our thinking. And so as we move ahead into this fall with our prayer pauses, we're going to take a turn into what's called formation prayers. Um, we just did a formation prayer in one sense. Songs uh, are formation prayers. And so formation prayers, first of all, inform what we believe, but then they affirm what we believe. The creeds are part of that, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. That's a formation prayer. And the worship songs. And later tonight, we'll be singing, you're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. And so as we do these things, again, if we let the words kind of go beyond just, yeah, I've been there, done that. But let it go a little further and ask God, God, take that truth deeper into my heart. Well, as we look at the prayer pause graphic, um, you'll notice we've changed something. We've, we've put in another R. 
and it's to reflect and refocus on God. And that's our primary purpose. Um, Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. And that's part of what we want to learn how to do. And so tonight, we're going to reflect and refocus on an aspect of God. And Nick's going to be teaching on it later. But God is a God of blessing. Okay? I love um, in Genesis 1, and 28, the very first thing God does after he creates Adam and Eve, it says, and God created man in his own image, and God blessed them. And the idea of blessing is to do good to, or to do good for. And that's the heart of God. The very first thing he tells us after he creates man is, I'm a God of blessing. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 3, and beyond, and it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, as we focus on the God who blesses, I'd like us to breathe deeply. Just relax for a minute and breathe really deeply and take several deep breaths. And as you do, I want you to think of what are the good things that you've experienced this week. James 1.17 says, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes down from the Father. And so as you think of the good things you've experienced this week, just breathe a prayer of thanks. And so we're going to, there's a couple slides that we're going to pray through. And I'm just going to read this through. And as I read it, if you'll just read it quietly, and then we're going to just set with this. And, and read it over a couple times just to yourself. And let it soak in, and then we've got a second slide. God of blessing, thank you. Thank you that you really do love me. Even when I don't feel it, you love me. Thank you that you love to bless people to do good to us. Thank you that I experience your blessings and your kindnesses every day. So take a minute to just reflect on a phrase, a thought about God being the God of blessing. And then let's go to the sec our second slide. God of blessing, thank you. Thank you that because of Jesus Christ, I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I am chosen by you because you want me. I am adopted into your family because you want me. I am a recipient of your lavish grace every day. I am redeemed by Jesus' blood, 
I am forgiven all my sins against you and others. And I am sealed as yours by your spirit. So take a moment and just do the same thing. Just maybe pick one of those phrases to just sit with and thank God for. Father, thank you that you are the God who loves to bless us. Would you open our eyes this week to the many little and big and varied sizes, blessings that you give us. Open our eyes to see your goodness in new ways this week so that our love for you will grow. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Hey, uh, that is such a, a powerful practice to get to do in a corporate setting. And as we continue in our worship tonight, I just wanna give you some insight to this song that we're about to sing. It's called, I Belong to Christ. And it's actually a song that we wrote here in our own body. It's all about identity. It's all about who we are in Christ. So you're gonna start to hear more uh, music that was written from our people. So I just wanted to, to highlight that and let you know that that's something we're passionate about as we continue to worship. So church, would you stand and let's sing about Christ.
pray for our offering church. Would you say this out loud with me? Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, Multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your son and your spirit, amen.
Soften our hearts and our ears to hear from your word tonight, Father. We love you, God. We pray all these things in your most precious name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Over the past year, one of the questions I've gotten more than any other question is, where are we going? Like, what is the vision for Fellowship Mosaic? Who are we as a church? What are we up to? And uh, I... To make this really brief, I can think of no better answer to that question than the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul wrote sitting in prison after being away from a church that he had spent three years with and wanting to remind them without any one big problem, he wanted to just set a vision for them of who and what the church ought to be and be about. So let's go. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, open your Bibles. We begin, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right out of the gate with with a very simple greeting, Paul is already doing something surprising. As Paul opens a letter, like all ancient letters would have been written, you name the person who's sending it, and you name the person who's receiving it. It's a very, remember in like, I don't know, third grade when you learned how to write a letter and you learned all the little forms of dear so-and-so, sincerely so-and-so, and you practice writing letters, you have a pen pal and all that fun stuff. Do you remember this? This is universal sign or at least American sign for yes. Okay, good. Awesome. That They had a form, a form of letters that we would all recognize. And there's so many interesting things happening just in these first two verses that, that Paul communicates what this letter and what his life and mission is all about. First of all, he names himself as an apostle of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes some of these words and titles we have can get a little bit muddled up for me, like apostle, disciple, follower, pastor. What do all these different words mean? The word apostle is a very special word. It means someone who has been sent with authority. Um, The closest parallel I think we have today would be like an ambassador, Right, So if there's some kind of international negotiations taking going place, if you sent an ambassador, they would have the, the responsibility to speak on behalf of the nation who sent them. And so that's the idea of an apostle is that Jesus has selected a group of people and he's given them this very special title, apostle. 
And with that, they have been given the responsibility and the authority to represent Jesus in laying the foundation for the churches, these new people. So when Paul says an apostle, he's saying right out of the gate, I have the right to tell you what you should be, church. I've been given this responsibility by Jesus to set a vision for the church. And so that's why we cherish the scriptures, is because these are people that were commissioned by Jesus to set the bar for us on what we ought to be. And he says he's writing it to God's holy people in Ephesus. Now, the NIV translates that word holy people in a way that is non-traditional. For, for a long, long time, the word translated there would be the word saints. He says to God's saints in Ephesus. Now, the reason they quit translating it that way is we have developed a weird connotation with the word saint. Uh, we tend to think a saint is an, an extra special spiritual person who goes above and beyond everyone else. And that's not how the word is used anywhere in the New Testament. You see, the word saint or holy one means one who's been set aside for a special purpose. And the point of what Paul's saying, when he looks at this church, he says, every single one of you have had your lives set apart for the Lord. Every single one of you is a saint, a holy one. You belong wholly to Jesus, completely to Jesus. And the defining mark that makes you a saint or a holy one is that you are the one who is faithful in Christ, meaning you put your trust and your loyalty in Jesus. So right out of the gate, Paul is defining the relationship of the people in this conversation. Paul, the apostle, the representative of Jesus, is setting a vision for a group of people who belong to Jesus on what their lives should look like. And then he offers them, on behalf of the Lord, grace and peace, God's favor and God's peace on their lives. And at the very end, he does something utterly surprising. We might read over it and think, yeah, of course, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is, in just a little wordplay, expanding our theology of who God is. There was this little prayer that every Jewish person would grow up praying their whole life. It was called the Shema. They would pray it every day, multiple times a day. And it would go like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would say it over and over again. The Lord our God, the Lord our God, the Lord our God. That was a title that they knew represented the one God of Israel, the Lord our God. These words go together. Look at what Paul has done to the Shema here in verse two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now representing that Yahweh, the God of Israel, actually is known to us through Father and Son. He's showing that you cannot know the Lord our God who is one apart from knowing the Son. And that's just his intro to the letter before he launches in. But this, this foundational thing of what Paul, I believe, is doing here is gonna make sense of the next 11 verses we're gonna look at. Because Paul is now gonna fill this picture of how we know and relate to God with an overwhelming picture of who Jesus is and what God has done for us through Christ. So in verse three, Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same phrase again, God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, the NIV has translated the word at the beginning of this verse, praise be, and I get why they did it, because 
the, the way it was traditionally translated sounds a little awkward to English-speaking ears. Originally, it would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And that's not a traditional way of saying what they're trying to say. What they think the, the intent is to say, praise God. But what's lost there is that you have the word blessed show up three times in this verse. It's the same word. Blessed be the God who has blessed us with blessings. What does this word blessed mean? Tom alluded to it earlier. It's to, to do good to someone. I think it's a word that has lost a little bit of its meaning in our culture today. Uh, where's the most common place you're going to come across the word blessed today? When you sneeze, right? Um, when you sneeze, you're going to bless someone or you're hashtag blessed. Um, it usually means like I'm experiencing something really sweet right now, like a new car or a vacation at the beach or my kid just won a baseball game, right? Um, whereas the word blessed has, has come across, I think maybe a little bit cheapened. Something we've not less, lost the meaning of is its opposite, which is curse. Bless and curse sit in opposite to each other. Now, when you say that you are going to curse someone, what does that mean? We don't need examples right now, okay? To curse someone means that you are going to use strong language to harm another person. Now, in a more magical sense, you might actually use strong language to try to bring some supernatural power against someone if you're putting a curse on them. To bless is the exact opposite of curse. To bless is to speak in such a way that good comes to other people. Now, when humans bless people, the, really the best we can do when we, talk, when we say bless you is really utter a prayer. We're really saying, would God do good to you? When God blesses people, like Tom pointed out in Genesis, when God says, let good things happen to you, guess what? Good things happen. Like this is the God who says, let there be light, and guess what? There's light. So when God says, be blessed, that was... Really? Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if that's delivered or not, but that's cool. Um, when, when God says, let good be done to you, good is done. But there's a pattern that, that Paul is, is grabbing a hold of here that goes all the way back to the Psalms. It's a particular kind of psalm that we find that the title of it is a blessing psalm, and it follows this pattern. It always says, blessed be the Lord our God who has and the psalm will go on to list what God has done for us. Blessed be the Lord our God who rescued us out of Egypt. Blessed be the Lord our God who has kept our king safe from harm. There was a, these were blessing psalms that we would read about. And what Paul does here to open the letter to Ephesians is he writes a blessing song. And he proceeds to say blessed is our God because of all the blessings he's given us. And in verses 4 to 14, he's going to list those blessings. And for, I don't know if you've ever heard this passage preached on before, but almost every single time I've ever heard it preached, the preacher's drawn attention to the fact that this is one long sentence. And uh, some English translations will try to break it down into shorter segments, but they'll talk about how this is just this really long, hard-to-read, run-on sentence. And you'll get the impression that Paul was just a really bad writer, who couldn't pass sixth grade grammar. Um, and the reality is it reads like a really long, awkward sentence in English, but they didn't write in Greek the same way we write in English. In fact, what Paul is doing here is beautiful literary writing because he's writing in a style where he would stack phrase on top of phrase 
with a kind of repetition and rhythm that draws attention to something. It's similar to, if you've heard uh, Barack Obama's Yes We Can sermon, he would, there would be a, a phrase and then you'd repeat it. And then there'd be a phrase, then you'd repeat it. We hear this in politicians all the time, right? They grab some kind of electrifying phrase and then they say something and then the phrase. We've also heard it in the, the famous That's My King sermon where you'd give a description of Jesus and then that's my king. And the idea is you're not looking for a beautifully written grammatical paragraph, rather you're following the refrain that keeps on coming back to the main idea. And when you read this paragraph, catching that rhythm, something really powerful comes out. Look at what Paul's done and how he's laid out these verses. As he starts reading about, talking about the blessings of God, it says, for he chose us in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. His glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption, through his blood. He made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are chosen. You also were included in Christ. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Do you get the point? What Paul is doing is he's taken language that comes from the Old Testament, what God did for his people. He chose the nation of Israel. He chose Abraham. He redeemed them when he rescued them out of Egypt. He, he forgave their sins. He's going to seal them. All these ideas of what God does, Paul is now saying, everything that God accomplishes for his people, he has accomplished in Christ. That's the point of this psalm is he's listing all of the blessings of God with the constant echo, he did it in Christ. It's been accomplished in Christ. It's been done in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that ours comes to us through Jesus. And so now we're just gonna walk through these blessings a little bit and try to get a sense of what, of what these are so that we can anchor in on what is actually ours in Christ. Um, one of the things that I... I I understand why we have a tendency to do it. I do it myself. But a lot of times when difficult things come our way, I don't know if you've ever been trained in this way of handling things or trained others in this way to do it. When you have a really bad day or something hard happens to you, one of our go-to things is to find someone else who has it worse. Right? We've all like done that to children, right? Like pointed out there's somebody on the other side of the world who's suffering worse than you are right now. And that sounds like a helpful tool for coping until you're actually living out the worst case scenario. If the best tool for going through something hard you have is to find someone who has it worse, what happens when you really are going through the worst? And we're actually given something more powerful than finding someone who has it worse. We're actually given a list of blessings that are promised to us in Christ that nothing could ever take away from us that are gonna carry us through absolutely anything we can go through. And that's what Paul does here. So as we look in verse four, when we take a look at these blessings, uh, a beautiful thing that Paul has even done is I think he's trying to drive home this idea of everything coming through Christ. He structured this paragraph around the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. So we're gonna begin in verse four and look at the work of the Father. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. Everybody gasped. <gasps> We're gonna talk about predestination tonight. It's gonna be fun. 
Someone will leave the church. It'll be great. Um, That's not really great. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, so we can't read this paragraph without talking about this big, scary theological concept of predestination. Who in here has heard of predestination before? Okay, who in here has gotten a, into a fight with someone over the, over the meaning of predestination? Who in here has felt a little panic in their heart about the idea of predestination? Okay, we're getting a little fewer. Okay, awesome, so maybe it's not too bad. Um, I'm tempted to ask who in here believes in predestination. I don't wanna do that because it's a trick question. You have to believe in predestination if you believe the Bible. The word is right there in Ephesians, right? Like, we have to believe in the concept of predestination for following the scriptures because the scriptures explicitly say God predestined us. The question is, what does that mean? The word predestination, a lot of times breaking words down in their roots is not particularly helpful. Like if you were to take the word butterfly and try to figure out its meaning from the roots butter and fly, um, that's not gonna get you very far. And so a lot of times people will do that with words and they'll break them down. It's like, that's not what that word means at all. This is one of the few places where it actually really does give you the meaning. Predestination is to set a destination beforehand. That's exactly what the word means. You're setting someone's destiny before it has taken place. That's the meaning of the word. Okay, so what does that actually mean for Christians? Why does it freak us out so much? Um, It terrifies people. It causes a sense of pain because the fear is, is that if we say God has predestined certain people, it seems like we are suggesting that our choices don't matter. That Fate is so strong that certain people are gonna be redeemed, others are not, and there's nothing we can do about it. Our choices mean nothing, and that sounds a little cruel and heartless of God to many people. Okay, well, first, we need to recognize that there have been a lot of different ways that people have understood what does it actually mean that God predestines us. I've just put four on the screen of some of the most common uh, interpretations. The first one would be that God is choosing certain individuals that will believe. He is choosing who will believe in him before time. He's destining certain people for faith. Another option is that God from eternity past looks into the future and sees who will believe and seals their choice. It's like he's putting his stamp of approval and his protection over the choice that they will make. Another option, this might seem a little, new, a little barely nuanced, but, but hang with me on this, that God is choosing the destiny of those who will believe. He's not choosing who will believe. He's choosing where they're gonna end up. So for example, uh, this is silly, but imagine that you had, hey, there's a a mystery cruise and we're not gonna tell you where it's going, but everybody who signs up on the cruise is gonna get to go. And then once you signed up, you go, yay, it's a cruise to Alaska. You set the destination. The people get to decide whether they're gonna get on the boat and somebody chooses the destiny of that boat. So according to these people, the idea of predestination is not God choosing who will believe, but he's choosing what will happen for those who do believe. Similarly, uh, the, the last one would be that God is choosing to save a group of people made up of those who believe. So the point is not God choosing individuals, it's that he's choosing a group. It's as if God said, I am choosing to save the church. And then based on faith, you will determine whether or not you're gonna be a part of that group who is saved. Now, Are you ready for the right answer? I don't know. I really don't. Um, My my own conviction is I don't think the scriptures nail it down. 
I don't think the scriptures give concrete, clear enough indications that we can understand exactly what it means that God predestines those who are his, that he sets their destiny ahead of time. I think there are two truths that we can be absolutely confident in. One is that God is sovereign over everything that happens in the universe. That he is omniscient, he knows all things, he's beyond all time, and he's over all things. And the scriptures affirm over and over again that our choices are meaningful and matter. That God doesn't desire for anyone to perish and that the invitation for salvation goes out to all. Now, how do you reconcile all of that? How do you take this sovereign, infinite God who makes a world where people's choices matter even though he's sovereign over it, who wants all to be saved even though he knows not all will be? That's above my pay grade. And I think it's above yours too. I think it probably takes the infinite mind of an infinite God to hold all that together. So I would encourage us not to have a fight or leave a church over this question. Um, But I also think that many of our um, theological hangups on this question miss the point that Paul is making. While it is completely understandable that people would have questions about how all this works, I don't think those questions are anywhere near the heart and mind of Paul when he's writing this. I think he's trying to say something totally different. Let's go back to the passage. It says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, and he predestined us to be for adoption to sonship. What is Paul trying to say? What is the blessing here that he's affirming to believers? God picked you. God once you. I remember I was a sophomore in high school when I was at summer church camp, which is a great place to experience the Lord and make friends and also feel really insecure. And we were playing a game of Ultimate Frisbee and I was the new kid there and they picked captains and the captains were picking the teams. Do you remember these moments as a young person? And they're going through picking and I'm getting more insecure as each pick happens that it's not me. And at the very end, it's down to two kids, me and the really awkward, unathletic kid. And they picked the awkward, unathletic kid. What does that tell you about me? If you've ever been the person not chosen, you've ever been the person not chosen for a relationship, you've ever been the person not chosen for a job, not chosen for friendship, not chosen to make the cut in the reorg. If you've ever been the person who has been rejected and not good enough for somebody, Paul is speaking right to that and saying the God of the universe chooses you. He wants you as his child. He has zero buyer's remorse. He didn't throw up an invitation for people to come and they go, oh, I did not expect her to say yes. Now I'm stuck. The point that Paul's making is that every single one of you is personally chosen by God. He wants you in his family and he has sealed that destiny for you to be his child adopted into his family forever. That is the point that Paul is making, is he wants everybody to know that they have the blessing of being loved, desired, and chosen by God. And he roots this, he says, this happened before the creation of the world. That means before you had a chance to do anything to deserve this. 
and before all the things you've done to lose this, he chose you knowing all of that, and he sealed that choice anyway. He predestined that. Uh, has anybody else freaked out about the James Webb photographs like we have been in our household? Um, let's bring those telescope images up. Like, I have just been like, we've had a lot of fun just going crazy about these amazing images of the universe. The scriptures say that the stars are the works of God's fingers. Y'all remember finger painting as a kid? Like, I can't, I can't look at these pictures without picturing God just kind of like, Paul is saying that before the creation of the universe, God had you in mind. That when God was doing this, when God was making this, he had in his heart, I love Travis Willis. I can't wait to make him mine. I love Robert Dorch. I can't wait to bring him into my family. Like that was what was going on in the heart and mind of God when he was doing this. One of the things I think Paul is doing, he's trying to expand and really just explode our understanding of God's love for us. And show us how deeply rooted our life in him is. He chose you and he gave you a destiny of being part of his family, of being adopted and being his and belonging to him forever. And all of that is to the praise of his grace and his goodness. And then he shifts to what the son had to do for that to be real because the reality is even though we were sealed and chosen before we could do anything, We've done a lot of things, right? We've done so many things to not deserve that destiny. Our sin and rebellion against God, we have stiff-armed the one who chose us, the one who loved us. And so it was also part of God's blessing that he made provision to overcome that. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Not only before time was God choosing us, but in time, God stepped into this place, took on flesh and died so that he could pay the redemption price to make us his. He followed through on his commitment before eternity by redeeming us. That word redemption, um, it's another word that maybe has lost some of its meaning. Originally, it's, it's, it's a marketplace term, particularly it'd be used for slaves that a redemption price is what you would pay to purchase a slave and to buy their freedom. And even deeper than that, it's rooted in the Hebrew scriptures and what God did in the Exodus. Everybody seen the Prince of Egypt? Okay, hopefully we're somewhat on the same page here. That all of God's people, the, de the biblical definition of redemption is given in the Exodus. That when God's people were enslaved, God, by the power of his might, went in and rescued them and brought them out of slavery. And what Paul is saying is, we were chosen, we were God's chosen people, but our sin put us in a kind of slavery. So God redeemed us, he rescued us, and the price he paid was his blood, the death of his son, so that we could be rescued. And all of this he did and he made known to us 
the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Think about this. He made known to us the mystery of his will. This is, this is God letting us in on the inside secret of what he's up to in the world. When Jesus was looking at his disciples, he said, hey, you call me your Lord, and that's right, but I'm not gonna call you servant anymore. I'm gonna call you friend because you know what I'm up to. It is as if not only did he rescue the slaves, but the next day he brought him into his board meeting and said, hey, I want, to know how the business, I want you to know how the business is being run. I want you to be a part of these decisions. I want you to hear what I'm up to. God rescued us out of slavery and put us on his team with important things to do in his mission for the world. And he, this, all of this plan that he's putting together, it says it will be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment. This is looking to the future when everything comes true to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We looked at eternity past where God chose us and then it looks to eternity future where literally the entire cosmos, heaven and earth, will all be fixed under the name of Jesus. The one who purchased us is king of the universe. Do you see the scope of what Paul's doing here? He's gone eternity past, eternity future. He's looked at all creation and he's connected God's personal plan for you and me to his cosmic plan to redeem all things. Paul's saying you are swept up in all of this. Like God has put you in the middle of everything he's doing in the world. And then he continues in verse 11. In him we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Eternity past, he chose us. Eternity future, he's gonna bring everything together in Christ. But even right now, in all the little details, he's working it out according to his plan. So you can trust him. He's got this. Like, our brains, like when I was trying, when I was looking at those photographs, I was trying to read the distances to try to get a sense of scale. It's meaningless. Like I can't, I can't make sense of the distances they're talking about. I can't even fathom. Like I have, my brain does not have categories to understand light years. And what Paul's saying is, hey, the God who can work on that scale, who can program molecules and design galaxies can handle your career transition. He can handle that diagnosis you just got. He can handle that broken relationship you're walking through. He has every detail. He, if he chose you in eternity past and he set a destiny for you in eternity future, then he's got you right now. And then he turns to what God is doing for us by his spirit. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says that to mark this, he gives the idea of a deposit. Now, why do we give a deposit or a down payment? It's to show that we really, we're serious about what's gonna happen, right? You make a down payment as a way of showing you're really committed to making the rest of the payments. Look, listen to the generosity of God. 
He says, to, to make sure you understand that I'm really gonna redeem you in eternity future, I'm gonna go ahead and make a down payment to show I'm good for my word. And that down payment is putting his spirit on us. It's putting his spirit inside of it. And it's described as a seal. And the way a seal would work in the ancient world is you would, you would mark a letter with a custom seal that only belonged to that person in wax so that you knew it came from them. And if that seal hadn't been broken, you knew that it had been delivered from sender to receiver without being tampered with. The concept is God's Holy Spirit is put in each of us to make sure we make it from faith to glory without being tampered with. It is God's protection over us and guarantee that he'll finish what he started in us. Now, Here's the amazing thing about all these things God did. Not a single one of them can you measure or find scientific evidence of. There is no blood test that you can take that will come back positive for forgiven sins. Jesus said about the Spirit, we were just watching this in The Chosen today, that if you try to look for the Spirit, you can't see where he's going. You can't see where he's coming from. He's moving and he's active, and you can't catch him. So every single one of these provisions, you have to trust God's word that he said he did it. In fact, that's the purpose of all of this, is to set in front of you God's promised blessings that will be an anchor for your life that have taken on faith. Now, there's an interesting con contrast in the verbs that take place here. Take a look. There are, some, there are several verbs that God is said to do and a few that we are said to do. Take a look at the list. What does God do? He chose, predestined, adopted, lavished his grace on us, redeemed, made himself known to us, and sealed us. What do we do? We hear and we believe. That's it. That's our side of this equation. Hear the good news and trust it. Trust in him to deliver and he does the rest. And all these blessings are yours in Christ. We talk a lot about identity right now. That's a term that our culture is really locked in on, trying to understand who I am. And I think there's something right and healthy and good about our search for identity, but there's also something about it that can get really twisted, because our search for identity can become an obsession with self. That's why, I, I think it's why we are so in love with personality inventories. We love talking about ourselves, and we love to find out that somebody else wrote a whole book about us. That's really cool. But I'm not a mountain biker. Uh, I've only been like twice and both of them ended badly. But one of the lessons I was told, ignored and failed because of, was that if you don't wanna hit an obstacle, don't look at the obstacle. If you look at the rock, you will end up at the rock. Look at the trail. I looked at the rock. And so here's, here's the irony of our search for identity. If our search for being secure about who we are is followed by obsessively looking at ourselves, we're gonna crash every time. And sometimes I think we make the mistake of reading the scriptures as if it is a book about us, as if it is a personality inventory to tell us who we are. And the paradox, the irony of scripture is you will be most secure about yourself when you get your eyes off of yourself. The way Paul is bringing a sense of security and well-being for us is to tell us about God, to tell us what he has done on our behalf, 
so that we can lock in who is this story about? This story is about what God has done for his people. Your role in it is to hear and believe. Now, Paul didn't just say this to inform our theology. He's writing a praise song for a very specific purpose. We do this as parents all the time, right? When you sit down for dinner and mom goes, wow, dad, thank you for making us such a great meal. What is mom expecting happens right after that? Kids go, oh yeah, dad, thank you. You are modeling what you expect everyone else to do. So when Paul opens his letter by saying, praise God, praise God for blessing us this way, this way, this way, and this way, praise him, what is he expecting the Ephesians to do and us to do in turn? Yeah, praise him, celebrate that. So our proper response to this passage is to join Paul in counting our blessings in celebrating what God has done on our behalf. So here's the practical. We talked last week about meditation, about the importance of letting God's word get inside us. Here's what I wanna ask us to do as a church this week. The book of Ephesians is gonna be filled with all kinds of incredible theology and challenging applications to do, but I think it starts with praise for the blessings of God for a reason. I'm gonna challenge us to take this week and work through this passage one blessing a day. One blessing a day. Take five minutes at the start of your day. And just thank God that he chose you. You can take that card that you received and just let that be your guide for the week. And spend time getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto the one who has loved us so lavishly. And bless the God who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, You are so good and your grace is beyond what we could ever measure. And we just wanna say thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you can measure and manage the universe and yet you care about us. So Lord, remind us what's true this week. Let these blessings seep into our mind and hearts and transform how we see everything. Praise things in Jesus' name, amen.
to a say law as a church, just where we sit and reflect and pause, maybe ask the Holy Spirit what he might be telling us. So if you'd just sit now and reflect with the Lord.
Lord, thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you for giving us an identity, Lord, so we don't have to focus on ourselves. Lord, so we can focus on who you are inside of us, Father. We love you, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, church, one quick reminder. If you've signed up for Panorama or you'd like to sign up for Panorama, we will start that next week, I believe. So uh, there will be a yeah QR code if you'd like to scan it. Feel free to or get in contact with someone in our foyer. Uh, church, thanks for coming this week. Let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, see you next week.